0: The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect.
1: Today's teaching text comes from Matthew four eighteen through 25. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
0: Thanks, Carla. Well, it is so, 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 so good to be with you. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, grab a Bible. Go to what Carla just read for us, Matthew chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be hanging out in really all of Matthew today, but we're at least going to start in chapter 4, and we'll, uh, we'll see what we can get through. We've got our work cut out for us. Uh, man, fall is here. Uh, I'm wearing a flannel. Labor Day is over. It got below 90, and the Panthers lost. So it is fall in Charlotte. Amen. Man, so good not to be a Panthers fan on seasons like this. Uh, Man, so good to be with you guys. We are kicking off a new series that I'll get into in just a minute, uh, centered around this idea, in case you hadn't noticed, do what Jesus did. And before we get to Matthew and really where we're going in tonight's sermon, I just want to be uh, clear that what you're guessing is true. This is, in fact, where we got the inspiration for this series. Anybody know what those are? Youth group kids in the room. Uh, If you don't, don't worry. You're not. uh, You're not left out. You're actually lucky. Uh, Those are WWJD bracelets, and those were the thing in kind of late 1990s, early 2000s subculture youth group of the church. And in case you're not familiar, that acronym WWJD stands for What Would Jesus Do. Now, they were the thing if you grew up in the youth groups when I grew up in there. So much so that if you uh, grew up in the lame Christian school like I did, and I say that with lots of affection and love, you were extra cool the more WWJD bracelets that you had. And so I remember in particular, one of my friends showed up to school one day, and he had hit the jackpot lottery for his birthday. And I kid you not, from wrist to elbow, he was just, I mean up to here with WWJD bracelets. And they were cheesy and they were lame, but here was the goal. Parents would give them to their kids and they would say, hey, when you're going through a hard situation or a hard decision in life, just ask yourself the question, what would Jesus do? So when you're on the playground and that bully pushes you over so they can use the slide before you, before you push them back, stop and ask the question, what would Jesus do? When you're in class and you're like, I have no idea what this test is about, and you're sitting next to the smart kid before you lean over and cheat off of him or her, stop and ask yourself the question, what would Jesus do? Now, I had a really good idea heading into this series where I thought we would hand them out to all of you guys, and it'd be like a fun fashion statement, and the team said no, so we're not doing that. But I am sorry, because in case you haven't noticed and you're not up with current trends like I am, this is cool again. It is actually cool again to wear WWJD bracelets. So Lindsay was at Brakeman's in Matthews on Friday, and she's sitting there, and somebody walks in, unironically, cool-looking from head to toe, wearing a big, bold shirt with the letters WWJD. Because this is the world that we live in, and everything old is new again, and the spirit of the 90s is alive in Charlotte, North Carolina. Now, I bring all that up because here's the deal. As cheesy as those bracelets were, and they were in fact cheesy, let's all admit it, the idea sort of makes sense. Especially now as a parent myself, I can see a lot of legitimacy to wanting my children, when they are old enough, to pause and ask the question what would Jesus do? If he was in my shoes, how would Jesus respond? What would he do? How would he live? But here's the beauty of the scriptures and the beauty of our Savior is that we don't really have to wonder. Because Jesus has, in fact, lived and been in our shoes. 2,000 years ago, the Son of God, fully God himself, becomes fully man. He takes on flesh, he enters into humanity, and for 33 some odd years he lives a perfect life, not only so that he could die as the perfect sacrifice for sin, but also to show us the most beautiful and flourishing and best way to live. And so the question we get to ask as followers of Jesus that we're going to be exploring over the next 10 weeks is not what would Jesus do, but rather what did Jesus do? Because, and here's what I want to lay out for us tonight to kind of set up this series, as Christians, part of following Jesus means doing what Jesus did. It's part of what it means to follow him, is to pattern our lives after the very things that we see Jesus doing during his time on earth. The, the late Christian philosopher Dallas Willard, in his fantastic book, The Great Omission, said it this way. He says, the greatest issue facing the world today... With all of its heartbreaking needs, is whether those who, by profession or culture, are identified as Christians, will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. Learning how not to believe the life of the kingdom, but to actually live the life of the kingdom. Now, because a lot of us are new and those who aren't new like me may be prone to forget this series we're about to do this fall is actually part of a larger whole for our church. So back in the fall of 2020 and each fall over the past three years, we've been on this journey together called rhythms and formation. And we've been exploring and building out this framework for spiritual formation or maturity centered around this question. What does it mean to follow Jesus in the everyday stuff of life? What does it mean here and now in the modern secular West to follow Jesus or what some might call discipleship or still others apprenticeship to Jesus? And that's the question on the forefront of our minds that we've really been seeking to answer over the past two years. And we're going to answer even into this series centered around this idea of doing what Jesus did. And so tonight... We're going to kind of go uh, fly over through a ton of different passages in Matthew, and my goal is to just reset us on where we've been, so this is going to be new for some of you, this is going to be repeat for a lot of us, and to also kind of set up where we're going over the next nine weeks, it'll make a ton of sense, we've got a lot of work to do. Let me pray real quick, and then we're just going to go to work in the book of Matthew. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for who you are, and we thank you for Christ. Lord, we thank you that Jesus, fully God, becomes fully man, enters into humanity, takes on flesh to live the perfect life. The life that none of us can live and the life that none of us could or can or will ever live. Showing us this is what it means to live in a flourishing and best way, but also showing us our great need for a Savior. So God, I pray as we think about over tonight and over the next ten weeks, what it is that Jesus spent His time doing. Lord, would You challenge us? Would You convict us? Would You shape us? Would You mold us more and more into the image of Your Son? We love You. We need You. God, would You help us to hear from Your Word? In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, "Amen." Matthew chapter four. We're going to start in verse eighteen. Most of it'll be on the screen, but you can follow along there as well. It says this While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me. If you're the type of person who likes to underline or write or highlight on your phone, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, up until this point in the Gospel of Matthew, just to give you a recap, uh, we've seen the birth of account of Jesus, the wise men, the manger, Silent Night, all of that fun stuff. And then in chapter three, Jesus is baptized as a sign of the inauguration of his ministry, that he is now entering into these years before the cross, where he's going to do ministry on the earth and right after his baptism, Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where he's going to fast from food and water for forty days, constantly being tempted by The devil, and he comes out of the wilderness, and he begins his earthly ministry at the beginning of chapter 4, and the very first thing we see him doing is inviting people to, quote, follow him and he does so with really a rather peculiar phrase to us as modern westerners he says hey come follow me and i will make you fishers of men which is not jesus being like funny and witty he's not like hey you're a fisher man i'm gonna make you fishers of man like that's not a joke what jesus is actually doing here is he's using an ancient hebrew idiom for an invitation to be a great teacher someone in this culture who was a fisher of man was someone who was able to teach and lead others on the path towards god So Jesus comes to them and says, follow me and I will make you a great teacher, one who can lead and teach others. Verse 20, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them and immediately they left their boat and their father and what? Followed him. So now Jesus has two more disciples, right? He starts with Peter and Andrew, two are brothers, now two more brothers, James and John, and both sets of brothers drop everything, and the language of the text is that they follow Jesus. Verse 23, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. great crowds followed him from Galilee, and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan." Let's track what's happening here. Jesus starts his ministry. He calls some folks to follow him, to be his disciples, to learn his ways of ministry. He's going to make them into great teachers and leaders. And then take note of the very things Jesus is starting to do as a part of his ministry. He's teaching. He's preaching. The text says proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He's healing sickness and disease. He's casting out demons. He's starting to do the work you're going to see a pattern of more and more. Chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain... And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then what follows in chapters 5 through 7 is commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' greatest and longest recorded sermon where he sits down, he brings his disciples close to him, and he teaches them this is the flourishing way of Jesus. It's this marvelous, fantastic sermon all about suffering and holiness and generosity and anger and fasting and prayer. This kind of difficult and yet beautiful flourishing way of life that Jesus is inviting his followers into skip past the sermon, and you get to chapter 9. So skip over there and look at verse 9. Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. All right, so if you're not familiar, tax collectors were kind of the disdain of the Jewish people. So if you were a tax collector in that time, the Jews were under oppression from the Roman Empire. And so what the Roman Empire would do is they would hire Jewish, essentially, traders, right? Like Benedict Arnold's people who would turn on their own countrymen, collect taxes on behalf of the Romans, and then pocket some of the money for themselves. And so if you were to be one of the people who would be a tax collector, you just kind of weren't all there with your conscience. Like, you were okay betraying people, profiting based on the suffering of others. Matthew's just not the guy you would expect for Jesus both to be interacting with, but also to be inviting and calling to follow him. But Jesus shows up at the tax booth and look at what he says. He says to Matthew, the tax collector, follow me. There's that phrase again, underline it, highlight it, follow me. And what did Matthew do? He rose and followed him. Same invitation, same response. Jesus comes to this man and says, follow me. And the person drops everything and goes and follows Jesus. All right, let's pause there for a minute before we keep going on our journey. I hope you like the Bible because there's going to be a lot of it tonight. Before we keep going, let me just pause, and I want to make sure that we collectively understand the weight of what Jesus is doing here. When he shows up on the scene into these folks' lives and says, come follow me, that is a weighty and beautiful and difficult thing. And so to understand Jesus' invitation to follow him, you have to understand what it means in first century Judaism to be a disciple. So the word disciple in Hebrew is the word Talmudim. And Talmudim can be translated, yes, as disciple, but also as student or follower or apprentice. So kind of a modern day secular equivalent would be like a carpenter or an electrician or a plumber think someone who apprentices, who learns a trade under someone else to eventually take over the trade themselves, someone who studies and learns and imitates the work of another person. And that's what it meant to be a, a Talmudim, a disciple in ancient Judaism, someone who apprenticed under a rabbi, a Jewish teacher of the law. Now, here's what it meant to be a Talmudim. So before you even reached that stage where you were officially someone's disciple, in this culture, you went through four 14 to 15 years of intense training and schooling during which you memorized most of what we have today is the Old Testament. So Genesis through Malachi, those books that it's like, it's hard for us to read, myself included, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you'd have that, everything from Genesis to Malachi, memorized over the course of 14 to 15 years. And at the end of those 15 years of intense schooling and training, if a rabbi wanted you to be his disciple, you would sit down for sort of a theological interview. They would ask you questions about your doctrine, about your theology, about how you interpret and read the scriptures, question after question. And if the rabbi deemed you worthy of being his Talmudim or his disciple, he would say something like, come and follow me. Come and be my disciple. Sound familiar? Now, if you were invited to be a Talmudim or disciple to a rabbi, you had three main goals. As a Talmudim, your first goal was to be with your rabbi, to be with your rabbi. You would spend 24-7 with them. You'd follow them around. You'd eat with them. You'd sleep by their side. There was a well-known Hebrew blessing that people would speak over disciples in that time, where they would say uh, to them, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And it was a blessing to those Talmudim saying, when you walk so closely with your rabbi, that as he walks on the dusty roads, he would actually kick his dust on to you. It was a closeness they were meant to have as they learned to be with their rabbi. And then the second goal, as they learned to be with him, is they would become like their rabbi. They would They'd become like their rabbi as they spent all of this time with their rabbi they learned to be his greatest imitator they would try as hard as they can to emulate everything down to mannerisms and way that they talk and speech and how they said things and why they said things and when they said things and their inflection of their voice and how they ate and how they interacted with others they just wanted to be a carbon copy of the rabbi they were following So when Jesus shows up on the scene at the beginning of Matthew, and he says to these people, come and follow me, that is the invitation that he's extending. Jesus shows up as a rabbi. Now, obviously, we know he's more than a rabbi. He's the Messiah. He's the son of God. He's the savior of the world. Come to usher in the kingdom. But as an ancient rabbi, Jesus calls disciples. So what's fascinating about Jesus is unlike the other rabbis of ancient Judaism, he doesn't call the best of the best. He doesn't sit down with some theological interview about their training and background. He goes to fishermen and tax collectors, the outcasts of society, those that the other rabbis didn't want, those who were rejected. And Jesus says, you guys, you are the ones who I invite to come and follow me. Jesus invites these guys, just like the ancient rabbis, to first be with him. These would, they would spend time, as you kind of trace the story of Matthew and the other Gospels, they would just follow Jesus from town to town, and they would ask him questions, and they would see how he interacts with the sick and the poor and the children. He would consistently teach them, like we see in Matthew 5 through 7. They would just learn, what is Jesus like? What is he doing? I just want to be with him. I just want to sit in his presence. And then after being with him, the goal is that they would become like him. So, as his disciples saw Jesus love, they would learn to love. As they saw Jesus be patient, they would learn to be patient. As they saw Jesus live with joy in the highs and lows of life, they would learn how to live with joy in the highs and lows of life. Is what they're doing—they're being with him, they're becoming like him. But there's a third step in being a Talmudim, and to see that, look a little further down in Matthew chapter nine. We'll pick up the story in verse thirty-five. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So what does that sound like? Matthew 4, 23, right? It's a repetition. Jesus is continuing his ministry, doing the exact same things we see him doing in Matthew chapter 4. Preaching the kingdom, teaching the way, healing the sick, casting out demons. First in Galilee, now in the surrounding towns And villages, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest." The word send there in verse 38, where he says, pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest to send our laborers. It can be traced to where in modern times we get terms like mission or missionary, right? A missionary is one that we talked about a few weeks ago, who is sent by God to join him in his kingdom work in the world. So notice what's happening here, right? Jesus becomes embodied. He takes on flesh. He's fully God, but he also becomes fully man. And because Jesus becomes fully man, there's spatial limitations. He cannot be everywhere and do everything. And so he says, hey, there's more ministry work to be done than I in the flesh can do. Pray that God would send people to do ministry work. Pray that God would send laborers into the harvest, kingdom workers to carry on the work of Jesus. Look at verse 1, chapter 10. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The name of the 12 apostles are these. First Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew the tax collector, made it in, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And notice what happens. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice verse 8 Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. So, what is Jesus doing in his ministry in chapter 4 and chapter 9? Preaching the gospel. Teaching the way, healing the sick, casting out demons. He gathers the 12 to himself in chapter 10, and what does he send them out to do with authority in his name? Preach the gospel, teach the way, heal the sick, cast out demons. And then I love the last line. I've got it tattooed on my arm because I'm cool and I have a past. He says this. Thank you. I, Garrison said that joke wouldn't go well. Thank you. <laughs> He's not here. I do what I want you received without paying, give without pay. Or it's more commonly translated and quoted, freely you have received, freely give. So Jesus says, hey, freely you have received. You've been following me around, watching me, imitating me for six months, nine months, a year, two years, experiencing the love of God, being with me, learning how I live. Now go and give and do freely. And this is the third goal of the Talmudim. This is the third goal of the disciple. After being with their rabbi and becoming like their rabbi, the third goal is to do what your rabbi did. do what your rabbi did. The eventual goal is that you would be sent out from your rabbi to carry his teachings and his ways to others. You would carry on the work you've been watching him do for a set period of time, like a good plumber or a good mechanic or a good medical resident or whatever. The eventual goal is to actually be the one doing the work, right? The goal is not to just study a bunch and learn a bunch for the rest of your life. The eventual goal is to become a mechanic or a plumber or someone who actually does the work you are training to do. So Jesus comes as a rabbi By the Messiah, the Son of God, to usher in God's kingdom. He calls disciples, come follow me. And they start to follow him. They're with him. They study the way he, he does things. They imitate his ways. They read the scriptures with him. They pray with him. They Sabbath with him. They live in community and hospitality and generosity. They adopt his lifestyle. And through being with Jesus, they're changed. And then there comes this moment in Matthew chapter 10 where Jesus is like, all right, you guys are up. Hey, Peter, you see that demon possessed man over there? You got the Holy Spirit. Go for it. Hey, Mark, you see, you see that guy over there that, that's, that's sick? Yeah, that's you, man. Hey, hey, Bartholomew, can you, can you go up to Tyre and preach the gospel? You go up there, tell them about me. Hey, Hey, Matthew, tax collector, Matthew, you go and teach the way in Jerusalem. We'll get back here in a week or two or three and we'll debrief. And there's this great scene in Luke chapter 10. We don't have time to hop over there. But they do, they go out, they start doing these very things, they're casting out demons, they're healing the sick, they're preaching the gospel, and they all get back together and they're like, Jesus, this is awesome, the demons submit to us in your name. And he's like, that's great, don't rejoice in that, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This this beautiful, fantastic, wonderful scene. But here's the deal, this charge that Jesus gives to the twelve to go do what Jesus did is not simply a charge for those twelve. Because as you track the trajectory of Jesus' life from here in Matthew 10 through his death and resurrection, there comes this moment where right before, after his resurrection, right before he ascends to the throne, right to the right hand of the throne of God, he gathers his disciples together one last time and he gives them these parting words. Matthew 28, Jesus' very final words to his disciples, these men that have been, been with him, become like him, imitated him in what they're doing, and this is what he says. Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The very last words of Jesus to his followers is that living as disciples of Jesus would not stop with them. This is the call and commission he places onto these very first followers of him, that they would go and they would make more disciples. They would go lead some folks into the way of Jesus. They would teach others who will teach others who will teach others how to be with him and become like him and do what he did. And if you read the story of the scriptures into church history, that's exactly what they do, right? These 11 take off and the gospel spreads like wildfire across the world. And you can track through Acts and then 2000 years of church history across time and place, more and more people caught up into the grace of God with the very same invitation of Jesus come and follow me. That was the invitation then, 2,000 some odd years ago. That's been the invitation of Jesus for the last 2,000 years, and that is still his invitation for us. Today, the invitation of Jesus to us is, come and follow me. Come and be my disciple, that you too would learn to be with Jesus Right, through these spiritual practices, abiding with Him through Bible reading and prayer and Sabbath and silence and solitude and fasting and feasting, all of these practices that are invitations to just be in the presence of the Lord. And then as we learn to be with Him, then, then we would become like Him. We would embody the very characteristics the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. We would learn to live a life that mirrors the very character of Christ. We've talked about these things over the past two years, right? These have been the invitations for us last fall and the fall before that, that we would learn to be with Jesus and become like him. But it doesn't stop there because the third invitation is we as a church must learn to do what Jesus did. That's the third invitation, that as we're with Jesus more, we're shaped to become like him more, that in the power of the Holy Spirit, we would do the very things Jesus sends his disciples out to do through the power of the Holy Spirit and in his name, that we would do what Jesus did, which then leads to the obvious question, so what did Jesus do? We saw a little bit in Matthew 4, and we saw a little bit in Matthew 9, but as you trace the rest of the Gospels, there's some other things as well that we're going to be covering over the next nine weeks. And this is certainly not everything Jesus does. He does a lot. But here's some of the big categories that we'll be hitting. Jesus uh, did a lot of eating and drinking with those far from God. He sat with folks. He ate with them. He drank with them. He invited them into his presence. He was hospitable to those who did not know him, to those who others would call sinners, the rejects and outcasts of society. Jesus did a lot of preaching the gospel. We're going to see this uh, in two weeks in Mark chapter 4. Jesus comes proclaiming often the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus spends his time teaching the way. Matthew 5 through 7 is, the Sermon on the Mount is a beautiful example of that, where Jesus is teaching us how do we actually live as followers of Christ. Jesus spends a lot of time healing the sick. Town to town, he goes and they bring all of the sick and he heals them, casting out demons, spiritual warfare, engaging the powers and principalities of darkness that are alive in the world. Jesus lives a life of simplicity and generosity. Constantly giving and calling others to lay down their possessions to follow him. Jesus constantly prays for others, what's often called intercessory prayer. He pleads to the Father on behalf of those he loves. Jesus spends time standing up against religious corruption. It's shocking how many times Jesus goes toe-to-toe with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, constantly saying, no, you think this, here's the kingdom of God. No, you are saying this. Here's what it means to be a Christian. I'm really excited for that week. There's this passage where he tells them, uh, he says, "You go travel across sea and sea to make a convert, and you make them more and more a child of hell." We're talk about that. It's gonna be great. Last thing we see is that he does a lot of serving and sacrificing, beautifully put on display in the Last Supper. Right? He gets down in the posture of a servant, the lowest of the servant in that day. He washes his disciples' feet. And I love that list because that, that's the Jesus stuff, right? That's what we're invited into as his disciples. If that stuff doesn't get you fired up, I don't know how to. That's the stuff of Jesus. As you read Matthew 1 all the way to the end of John over and over and over again, this is the work of our Savior. But here's the, here's the reality, and here's kind of where I want to head us towards a close-ish. Uh, this is an extremely simple idea. Do what Jesus did is is an extremely simple idea on the surface. Yeah, what did Jesus do? Let's step into it too. And yet it is amazingly difficult. It is incredibly difficult to actually put into practice because what happens for so many of us in the Western church is that we miss it. We miss that following Jesus is so much about practice. And while following Jesus is certainly not less than faith and belief, it is much more than that. Well, following Jesus is not less than doctrine and theology, it is much more than that. It is about becoming a practitioner, one who learns to live in the identity given to them by faith in Jesus, that we would actually learn to live the kingdom of God into the corners of the world, to quote that Dallas Willard quote from earlier. The call to follow Jesus is much easier said than done. It's abundantly difficult and it's abundantly costly. And Jesus himself knows this. He knows how difficult it is. He knows how costly it is. We, we see this actually also put on display in Matthew. So there are times where Jesus shows up in people's lives and he's like, hey, come follow me. And Peter's like, let's do it. No more nets, no more those people. Let's just follow Jesus. But there's other times where folks don't immediately drop everything and follow Jesus. Let me show you one of those. Matthew chapter eight. Go back a little bit further to the left. Matthew chapter eight. This is the story that takes place in verse 18. Matthew chapter 8, verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And a scribe, someone who was familiar with the law, the, the words of God in the Old Testament, came up and said to him, Teacher, Rabbi, I will follow you, notice that phrasing, wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Verse 21, another one of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, these are not half-hearted excuses, right? Wanting a place to sleep at night while you follow Jesus is not a ridiculous ask. Let me go bury my father is not a casual, lighthearted request. And yet within the posture of these two men, as weighty and as common sense as these requests of Jesus may seem, it keeps them back from following Christ. And the text and Jesus' response seems to indicate that what these folks want is a sort of following Jesus add-on discipleship to their lives rather than an all-of-life reorienting. So they want Jesus plus Jesus plus the way my life currently is. Jesus plus these other things and responsibilities I want to take care of. Jesus plus my own career ambitions. Jesus plus this relationship that I want. Jesus plus fill in the blank. And maybe, like us, the two men in Matthew 8, they have good intentions. Their intentions to follow Jesus were good, but the cares and burdens of life were just too great. or the pleasures and desires of their heart just too enticing. Or maybe like us, they like the helpful parts of being a disciple, right? They like the peace that Christ said he brings. They like the easy and light yoke of Jesus, Matthew 11, everyone's favorite passage in scripture right now. They like the idea of Sabbath, right? 24 hours of rest. Awesome. I'm in on that. Those parts sound wonderful and they are, and they're part of the invitation of Jesus, but the nowhere to lay our heads or the love your enemies or the take up your cross doesn't sound so fun. For Christ is clear. If we're to follow him, then we drop everything. If we're to follow Jesus, then we leave it all behind. And that's what he says in Matthew 16. I promise this is our last passage. I don't apologize, but I do promise. Matthew 16, 24 and 25. Jesus knows the costliness of following him. And he says this. If anyone would come after me, he's telling him to his disciples, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, the call to discipleship is not simply a call to come and follow. It is a call to come and to die. The understanding for ancient uh, Jewish rabbis is that when you came and they invited you, come and follow me and be my disciple, it was not just this incredible privilege and opportunity to learn and to grow and to walk and to live life with a great teacher. It was also an invitation to submission. It was an invitation that you would submit yourself to their life and their teachings and their ways. And so what your rabbi taught, you now believed. And what your rabbi said, you now followed. And what your ra- where your rabbi told you to go, you went. And what your rabbi told you to do, you did. You were giving him the authority in your life with glad and joyful submission. That was the understanding. And so Jesus, the true and greatest rabbi, Messiah, Savior of the world, Christ and King, would ask no less. Would he not? Discipleship to Christ is a call to come and die. Jesus says, Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. I get your wants, I get your preferences, I get your desires, I get your other ambitions, your direction, all of it. You submit it at my feet. And so now, what Jesus teaches, we believe. Where Jesus says to go, we follow. Where Jesus invites us to, we obey, and what he tells us to do, we do. He gets the authority in our lives with glad and with joyful submission. We reorient everything in our lives around him. I was thinking about this idea Uh, a few weeks ago. I I saw on YouTube... um, Dallas Willard, who we quoted at the beginning, um, kind of teaching on this idea of discipleship as hardware versus software. This is kind of where I'll close. He talked about this reality. You guys know the difference between hardware and software? I didn't. I Googled it, so I'll tell you. Hardware, if you think about like a MacBook, is the MacBook itself. It's like the physical stuff, and don't correct me if you're like a computer science guy. It's fine. It's like the physical stuff of the computer. It's the keyboard. It's the mouse, if you have one. It's the screen. It's the actual physical thing. That's the hardware, and then software is like the programs and the apps, right? am i good sweet thank you it's like the stuff you put on the hardware it's the the programming it's the apps it's calendar it's safari it's uh google sheets it's whatever you use on the actual hardware of the device and dallas wood is talking about this idea of discipleship and i haven't been able to get it out of my head you some of you have heard me talk about it and he said the problem is when it comes to engaging jesus in our discipleship we want 95 percent of the work to be the software And so what he said by that is, if you were to compare the lives of two people, let's take uh, the most Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christian guy who's 28 years old, and you put him as an accountant in the center of a city, and you take the most doesn't want anything to do with Jesus, staunch atheist, wants nothing to do with Christ, verbally against it, 28-year-old accountant, and you put him in the center of a city, 95% of their life will look the same. They'll go to the same places. They'll spend their time the same way. They'll do the same thing on the weekends. They'll spend their money the same way. They'll live in a relationship the same way. They'll date the same way. 95% of the hardware of their life will look the same. And he says, the problem is, when it comes to our discipleship to Jesus, we want to keep the hardware how we want it, and we want to engage on a software level. And so we want to go, okay, I'm struggling with anxiety and I need peace. And so I'm going to learn some verses about peace, which is not bad. And I'm going to study God's word and I'm going to engage with it on a software level, the world of ideas and theology and worldview and not actually engage my life in terms of practice. And he says, what happened is when we do that, when we don't engage with our discipleship on a hardware level, we blink and five years later, it's like nothing has actually changed because our hardware does not support the software we're trying to change. Tracking? So when we think about this idea of doing what Jesus did, this is not an invitation to spend nine weeks getting a lot of really good theology and a lot of really good ideas about the things that Jesus did. It's an invitation to engage the hardware, to actually go, man, is the system of my life different? Is how I spend my money different? Is how I spend my time different? If you were to comp- compare my life, the 24-7, for an entire week with the life of my neighbor who wants nothing to do with Jesus, would we spend the money the same? Would we spend our time the same? Would we love our spouse the same? Would we care for our kids the same? Would we work in the, co- in the space office that we work in the same? Is everything about our lives the same? The only difference is I have some thoughts about God occasionally. And the call of Jesus is to go, no, it's practice. Come and follow me come and be my disciple. Take up your cross and change everything. Reorient your entire life around the call of Christ. And so over the course of this series, I'm going to encourage you and challenge you and invite you. Do not engage theoretically. If you engage theoretically, we're going to get to the end of 10 weeks and you're going to be like, well, that was fun. I learned some really cool ideas about casting out demons. That sounds great. That's like four weeks from now. So look forward to that. But if you do that, you're going to miss the invitation of Jesus. The imitation of Jesus is not come and think some good thoughts about following me. Come and learn some good ideas about following me. What's the invitation of Jesus? Come and follow me. Not to make God love you. Let's not get it twisted. Not to earn right standing with God. Not to win God's approval. Not to have your sins forgiven. We don't go and do a bunch of things with and for and do what Jesus did so that God will love us. But because God loves us, we now step into the invitation of Jesus to follow him. Because this is the invitation of the gospel that Christ would say, come, follow me and die because I first died for you. That's the good news of the gospel that the rabbi savior Jesus who invites us to be his disciple would say, come and die because I came and died. That's the invitation of Christ that we give up our lives for the one who gave up his life for us. And so Jesus says, do you see what I've done for you? Do you want to come and follow me? Not half-heartedly, not a little bit, not in theory with all of life reoriented around the good news of Jesus. So that's the journey. Every week, we're going to have some guides that are going to correspond with the sermon, both for you as an individual and if you have kids. We also have practice guides for your family. where you can start inviting your little ones into what it means to practice the way of Jesus with uh, Him, to do the things that He did on a kid friendly level. I'm really, really excited uh, about that. But each week, we're going to have practices for you on our website, seditioncharlotte.com, to engage not just theoretically, but in the actual practice of discipleship. And this week we're kicking it off with a habit audit, uh, which is just a really helpful way to go, okay, what's the current hardware of my life? Right? Like if my life needs to be reoriented around Jesus, what am I currently doing? And is it actually making me more and more into a follower of Christ? Is it actually helping me become more and more like him? It's going to be on our website. I would encourage you to take some time this week, 30 minutes, an hour, and just sit with the spirit and this habit audit and just self-reflect. How is the current systems and my structures of my life actually leading me towards or away from Jesus? I'm really excited about this series. I hope you receive this as an invitation from the Lord to do the very things Christians have been doing for thousands of years to come, to be with our Savior, to become like our Savior, and to do what our Savior did. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for tonight. God, thank you for this invitation of Jesus. God, thank you that the call we see in Matthew 9 and, and Matthew 4 and this invitation from Christ to the disciples to come and follow him. God, thank you that that invitation is still for us today. Yeah, you that know, you call us to believe to put our faith in you, to put our hope in you. You say that it's, it's by faith and faith alone that we are saved in Christ, in Christ alone, Lord. But we know the invitation is not just to come and have faith, but to also come and follow, to come and lay down our lives, to come and practice your ways. Once I pray over this fall, God, that this would not be something we just engage with on a theoretical level and the level of ideas. God, that we would not just try to change the software, that we would not just change our minds. But that as we change our minds by the power of the spirit, you would then begin to change our hearts and then begin to change our lives. And we want to engage with this. We want to be people that learn to live as disciples, carrying the good news of the kingdom into all of creation. We need your help. And the beauty of you is that you don't call us to go anywhere you haven't first gone. And so your invitation to come and die only follows the the beautiful reality that Christ first came and died for us. So you invite us to see our Savior both on a cross, but also risen and ruling and reigning. Inviting us to come and to follow him. I pray that we would be a church who learns to be disciples, apprentices, practitioners of your ways, reorienting our entire lives around you. We love you, we need you. all these in Christ's name, amen.